Hey, thanks for checking out the Reveal Vineyard podcast. Here at Reveal, our mission is simple. Find God, find others, and find yourself. For more information, visit us online at revealvineyard.com. Last week, we started a two-week, short two-week series that's called Sacraments. I told you last week that a sacrament is a rite or a ceremony uh, instituted by Jesus and observed by the church as a visible sign of grace. Now, depending on your religious background, you may uh, come from some that uh, observe seven sacraments or, uh, you know, a, a different number. We observe two of them, uh, baptism and communion. Some will observe uh, things like marriage they would consider a sacrament or even last rites and uh, Uh, confirmation, things like that. But uh, we observed two of them, that of baptism and communion. Last week we talked about the sacrament or the ceremony of baptism. Today we're going to have men, women, and children that will participate in the ceremony or the sacrament of baptism. I hope you're there to celebrate with them. The first thought that I told you last week as a review was that water baptism is a visible response uh, to an invisible reality. That baptism is a visible response. You can see the person go in, in the water, out of the water, representing uh, their old being being put to death and a new creation, new creature coming out of the water. It is a visible response to an invisible reality. And that invisible reality is that something has changed in me. That when I've taken the step to make Jesus Lord and Master, Savior of my life, that he began a transformative work in me that you can't see, but it's taking place in me. His Spirit dwells in me. So baptism is a visible response to an invisible reality taking place within us. Paul says it like this in Romans 6. He says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, meaning something died in you. Your old man, your old woman, your old ways was put to death. And then Paul says, in order that, those three words, he says, now here's the payoff, here's what's coming, that you died in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in, there's the promise, newness of life. Baptism is a visible response to an invisible inward reality that new life has come to us. The old person has been buried with Christ, the new person coming out of the water, symbolic of the resurrection of a new life upon us. Second Corinthians 5 says that if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. Old things passed away, new things have come. Today, 33 men, women, and children will be baptized as an outward sign of an inward reality that Jesus has began to change their existence. The oldest probably one of the highlights of ministry for me. The oldest being baptized today is an 86-year-old man. Uh, And his 76-year-old wife. Uh, He was, he was for the longest time, uh, an atheist. And today, uh, having the opportunity to baptize him, I told my wife it will be a highlight uh, of ministry. And so, uh, for you to come out and to celebrate with us and change lives is, is the story of Jesus. It's why Jesus came among us, that we could step into a new creation, a new being. Sins washed away, and today we celebrate uh, that new life. Jesus gives us a spiritual 
do-over of sorts, a redo or a reset button that we're no longer defined or labeled by our past. I think that we can spend so much time lamenting the person that we used to be that we can forget about the person that we're supposed to be. I think at times that our past can have so much momentum chasing us that we lose sight of the future that we should be stepping into. And so today, uh, as we celebrate baptism, we celebrate new life. I hope to see you there at 5.30. And in our uh, final message of our sacraments series, today we're going to look at the sacrament of communion. Join me as we pray. Uh, Lord, we're thankful for the changed lives and all of the men and the women and children that will be baptized today. And uh, I pray as a church that we would rally around them and celebrate uh, the gift of Jesus and the cross and the resurrection and your body broken and your blood shed for the forgiveness of sin and for newness of life to be upon us. And today, Holy Spirit, would you speak to each one of us and uh, would you tear down any uh, ways that may not be pleasing to you, any thoughts or patterns of life or uh, habits that we have fallen into that today that maybe you want to challenge and you want to tear down and reestablish something new. And Would you come, Holy Spirit, rest and speak upon us and stir in us. And we pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Come, Lord. Amen. It was hours before his betrayal. Time pushed Jesus towards his arrest and his trial, towards the crucifixion and ultimately the tomb. The crowds had vanished and the curious have settled back into their mundane routines of life. There were no more healing crusades. There were no more mountaintop sermons. It was Jesus was left with his original crew, the 12 men that he called and taught and modeled what it looked like to reflect the light of God into a world that was consumed with darkness. These were ordinary, typical, almost forgettable men who had no special training, but that Jesus called and they responded yes to his call. And he began to train and teach them. Often they lacked faith. They lacked understanding. Uh, at times they struggled to even grasp the concepts of what Jesus was talking about. At times Jesus actually rebuked them for their lack of faith. But to 12 average forgettable men, he extends an invitation to sit at his table, the Lord's table, to sit and to listen and to watch and to learn and to absorb and then to replicate. This, we see, is his final meal, hours before his arrest. Where do you start when so much needs to be said? How do you take the scraps of time that you have left and build them into a life-altering moment for those that you love? This was his challenge. What do you say into the lives of 12 men? What do you speak into the lives of 12 men who would be given the challenge to change the world when you only have hours left to be with them? He invites them to be at his table, much like a table like this, the Lord's table, where they celebrated the Lord's Supper or communion as we know it. And some, depending on your background, maybe you call it the Eucharist. Listen to uh, what Barbara Brown Taylor says about what Jesus spoke or did in his final hours. He said, with all of the conceptual truths in the universe at his disposal, meaning Jesus could have said anything, he knew everything, writes Barbara Brown Taylor, Jesus did not give them something to think about, 
together when he was gone. Instead, he gave them concrete things to do. Specific ways of being together in their bodies that would go on teaching them what they needed to know when he was no longer around to teach them himself. Do this, he said, not believe this, but do this in remembrance of me. Matthew gives the account of this upper, uh, of this, uh, upper room uh, discourse with his disciples where he says it like this. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he, had given them, when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. Paul gives his account of this in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. He could have said anything to them. And yet, instead of believe this or think this, he tells them to do this so you would never forget what is about to happen. He said, do this so that you will remember my body, which is about to be broken, and my blood, which is about to be shed. Do this so you never forget about the cross and what is about to take place. And this is the sacrament of communion. That we eat of the bread and symbolizing the body of Christ which was broken. And we drink, and some we drink juice, some places drink wine. And, and, and symbolizing and remembering the blood of Christ that was shed for the forgiveness of sin. This is uh, the Lord's table. Where the invitation is given for all who are spiritually hungry to come and eat. And all who are spiritually thirsty to come and drink. We know that when God calls us to do something, that there is significance to it, that God is not into rituals just for ritual's sake, that he's not giving us things just to keep us busy or, or to keep us preoccupied. But when he says something, he, there is a meaning behind it. In the Old Testament, the seven feasts or celebrations that God gave over a seven-month period served a specific purpose. They highlighted the kindness and the provision and the mercy of God, ultimately pointing to the Messiah. It served a purpose not only for the individual, but for the community of Israel at large. And so now when Jesus gives us the sacrament of communion and he says, do this, celebrate this in remembrance of me, it's not just to, just to perform a ritual for ritual's sake, but there is a purpose behind it. It's highlighting something and it serves benefit for not only in the, the individual, but for the community or the church, us at large. So Jesus says, take this and eat, take and drink. I think uh, Jesus asked us to do this because he knew the human condition to take that which uh, once filled us with awe and caused it to become common and ordinary. I remember as a child, the first time I saw the Grand Canyon, it was like incredible. And now after about four or five times, I just refer to it as the big hole because that's all it is. It's just like a big hole, right? 
So we can take that which at one time inspired awe and now it can just become common or ordinary. I think Jesus knew our propensity to take that which had significance and, 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 and to lose significance in it. And so he told us as his final act, not what to think, not what to believe, but instead he said, do this because something is about to happen that if you forget or if you lose the awe of the moment, you will be missing everything as it pertains to your faith in me. And this sacrament of communion has been observed ever since. Meaning that we walk with thousands of years of history with men and women who have partaken of the sacrament of communion, remembering what the Lord has done. Generally, in the early church, communion was observed during a meal. Uh, Today, it is just a small portion of the church service, but uh, the early church celebrated it with a meal, much uh, like a table, around a table like this, where uh, there was food and there was drink and uh, there was uh, a meal that was presented and there was communication and there was an indwelling, there was a mixture of life that was taking place. One of the things I think that we've missed in our modern day interpretation of this idea of communion is we lose the, we lose the community of communion. And we have made communion just to be about us, but the early church, it was about something much bigger. And while we know that each community of the early church worshipped differently, a bit differently, it appears that most practiced communion by sitting around a table, enjoying a meal, and then going into the remembrance of what Jesus had done for them. It was a time where food was shared and stories were told and laughter echoed and and hope thrived and they gathered around the table, the Lord's table, in what became known as the love feast. Now, for those of you around in the 60s, maybe the 70s, your idea of a love feast was not their love feast, okay? It was a totally different type of love feast. But it was known as a love feast. Now, that sounds very strange to us today, but that's what it was known among the early church because what was known of early Christians was that they sat around a table and they ate together in this love feast where they celebrated the body and the blood of Jesus. Now, symbolically that we celebrate those things, but rumors started to stir that these Christians get together and they have a meal where they are eating flesh and drinking blood. And there was some that would say it is why Christians were so readily taking in orphans because they needed new, more flesh and more blood. True, that was some of the rumors that were started early first, second century of the, the early church. But they would gather together in, uh, around a table, the Lord's table, and they would share life together. And then they would remember Jesus just as he instructed them to do. In the second century, uh, an anti-Christian Greek philosopher by the name of Celsus uh, mounted an attack against Christianity in which he dismissed Christianity as a silly religion fit only for uneducated slaves and women. Fit only for the uneducated, for the slaves, and for women. And he had reason somewhat to say such a thing. Uh, sociological studies indicate that most people were drawn to Christianity was then called the way, uh, was drawn to the way. Most who were drawn in the third century were of the lower echelons of society. And the reason was pretty simple. Because the table of the early church, right, the remembering of Jesus, was open to everyone which was unheard of in this culture. And so to, to the widow who was seen as a drain on the society, uh, on society, the early Christians said, pulled out a chair and said, you have a place at the table. 
where you are valued and you belong with us at the table. It, it was to the woman of low esteem who was devalued by her culture that the early church pulled out a chair and said, you belong with us. You are part of us. It was to the sick and to the, the diseased who were seen as suffering the judgment of God because of their own sin or the sins of their family. It was to the sick and those who were cast aside that they invited in and said, you too belong at the table. That you can come and you can see and you can hear, listen, and you can taste that Jesus is good. It's what marked the early believers. That's what the early church got right. Sorry, they, they didn't get everything right, but man, they got this right where the table was open. It was constantly inviting in those that the culture have cast aside and the early church said, come on in. To the slave, they pulled up a chair and said, you belong at the table. Not as a servant, not as a slave, but as an equal heir of the kingdom. It was to the marginalized and the forgotten and to the uneducated and to those that society loathed and the beggar and the tax collector and that the, the, the church made up a, 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 of, of these types of people. The church made room and invited them to sit and to eat and to remember. And they gathered at the Lord's table and remembered how God became one of us. To remember how God ate with us and drank with us and laughed with us and cried with us and remember how God, Jesus, how he suffered for us and gave his life for us. The table in the early church, it was always, always open. At the table sat men and women and slave and free and Jew and Gentile of equal status, each partakers of grace and agents of grace. Each recognize that ultimately I don't even deserve to be at this table, but I have received grace and because I've received grace, I am going to extend grace and therefore whoever culture says is not welcome, the early church said you are welcome here with us. Grace, listen to what Robert Farrar Capone says, grace cannot prevail until our lifelong certainty that someone is keeping score has run out of steam and has collapsed. I love that saying. That grace cannot prevail until our lifelong certainty that someone is keeping score has ran out of steam and collapsed. And the beauty of the early church was that no one kept score. It was just, you're welcome here. See, this is one of the reasons that, that I need communion, the, the, why I, I need to remember, because I need to be reminded to live with open hands and to live with open hearts. I need to be reminded to let go and to let people in, and I need to be reminded to stop keeping score. And aren't we so quick to keep score? We're so quick to see who should be at the table and who shouldn't be at the table, but Somehow the early church got it right of just inviting you in. Paul said it like this. He said, here there is not Greek and Jew. Here there is not circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian or Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. In Galatians 3, he said, here there is no male and female. What Paul is saying is here, in this new community, here at the Lord's table, here at this moment, if you found this new faith, what Paul says here, we are all equal. Why can the table be open to everyone? Because we're all in the same condition. And the table is open for all. Paul said, here is the invitation for anyone who is hungry, for anyone who is thirsty. Come to the table, taste and eat 
and be satisfied. In this new reality, Paul says, here we are all equal. Here at the early church, there were Jew and there was Gentile. And there was slave and there were free. And there were those who were on polar opposites who outside of the church would have never gotten along. And yet somehow this, this Jesus thing began to cause their hearts to mesh together. Listen to what Richard Beck says. He said, participation in the Lord's Supper, right, Richard Beck, is an inherently moral act. Now catch that. It is a moral act. In the first century church and in our own time, People who would have never associated with each other in the larger society sit as equals around the table of the Lord. The Eucharist, therefore, that's the communion, the, the, the elements, right? The Eucharist, therefore, is not simply a symbolic expansion of the moral circle. The Lord's Supper, he says, becomes a profoundly subversive political event in which the lives of the participants becomes a profoundly subversive political event in the lives of the participants. The sacrament brings real people divided in the larger world into a sweaty, intimate, flesh and blood embrace where there shall be no difference between them and the rest. And our early church got this right. Where they knew that it was not just about me, that it was about us. And, and, and they, they understood it. And so we have to ask the question of, of, of why. Why did the early church embrace whose society is written off? Why did the early church include those who culture had cast aside and gather who humanity has scattered? And the answer is simply Jesus. They were modeling the life of Jesus. Luke 14 tells of a banquet thrown by a very well-known religious leader. And the guest list composed of who you would expect to be at a party of the rich and famous. It was the powerful and the wealthy and the up-and-comers. And the party was the place to be and the place to be seen. And the Gospel of Luke in the Bible says that Jesus was at this party. And to this group of wealthy and up-and-comers, Jesus clears his throat and he begins to speak. And you can almost picture Jesus looking around at all of the wealthy and, and all of, of, of those who, who have power and, and prestige. And you can almost see him looking around and wondering where are the ones that he spent most of his life with? Where are the poor and where are those in need and where are those who are sick? And they were nowhere to be found. And Jesus clears his throat and says to the master of the house, when you give a banquet, Jesus said, you should really invite the crippled. And you should really invite the lame and the blind because you will be blessed. He goes on to tell them a parable about a man who prepared a banquet and invited many guests. And when those who were on the guest list decided to decline to attend, the man instructed his servants to then go out into the streets and the alleyways in the town and to bring in the poor and to bring in the hungry and to bring in the handicapped and to bring in the lonely. And the servants went out and they brought in all of those people and they went back to the master and they said, Master, there's still room at your table. And the master said, then you go out to every location you can find and by whatever means necessary, you compel them to come because my table, my house must be full. Listen, 
what Jesus was telling them, telling us, is this is what the kingdom of God is like. That God threw a banquet and who he invited was not the rich and the powerful who saw no need within themselves, but rather who he invited was a bunch of outcasts and oddballs and those who have been broken and those who have been fragmented and those who have had life beat up on them. And he extended the invitation to all of them and said, bring them all in because there is always room at my table. And you are welcome here, not because you are good or because you are worthy, but simply because you are hungry and I invited you to come. There is an element of the communion table that is not about you. Yes, it's about remembering what Jesus has done for us, but it is bigger than that if you look through the, 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 the scriptures. It forces us to get out of our like-minded club. You see, it's so easy for me to gather people around me that believe like me, think like me, live like me, like the same things that I like, and we can get those people around us, but the communion table is about getting you out of the like-minded club and causing you to stand face-to-face with those who you have one thing in common with, and that is Christ who lives in you. It causes you to realize that you are different, and yet you are the same. Why, Paul says, listen, there's no slave or free or Jew or Greek or male, or female, there is just Christ in us and Christ for us. It should force us, the communion table. It should force us to hear the master calling, there is always more room at my table. Let anyone who is spiritually hungry come and eat. Anyone who is spiritually thirsty come and drink. And so today we gather around the Lord's table to remember the sacrament of communion. And we remember the body of Christ broken and the blood of Jesus shed. And we remember that the table is not just for me alone, but it is for anyone who is hungry, for anyone who is thirsty. In reality, what we're remembering is that the table of of God, the Lord's table, is a demonstration of grace that we don't deserve. And it is a gathering of of those who, uh, who are hurt and those who are weak. That the table of the Lord is for those who are winning and those who seem to perpetually lose. That the table of the Lord is not only for the up-and-comer, but it's also for the down-and-outer. The table is for the one who is strong in faith and the one who has more questions than answer. All are welcome. The table is for the one who is laughing. And it is for the one who is weeping. The table is for those who are easily loved and for the easily rejected. And this was the demonstration of Jesus and the demonstration of the early church that pulled out a chair and said, regardless of where you've been, you belong at the table. At the table in your congregation reveal, in your church, in your family. Seated with you are those who are broken and hurt and recovering and abused. With you are both those who inhale life and those who are grasping, gasping for breath. Around the Lord's table here at Reveal are those who are fighting with eating disorders and every day is a struggle. And to you, we say you are welcome at the table. At the table is a young man who has been fighting a meth addiction clean for 15 months. And to you, we say you are welcome at the table. True stories. 
At the table are parents with wayward children, some of them in prison. And to you, we say no judgment. You are welcome at the table. At the table are those who struggle with purity, who hate the very thing that they do. And to you, we say come to the table. You are welcome. The table consists of those who struggle with their sexual identity and are wrestling with who they are and what God has for them. And to you, we say you are welcome at the table. Come and see that Jesus is good for the soul. Our table is made up of recovering alcoholics, those who have been clean 40 years and some who can't stay clean for 40 days. And to you, we say you are welcome at the table. Our table is made up of the divorced who never wanted it, who never asked for it, never saw it coming, but sometimes love has a way of betraying us. And to you, we cast no judgment, but we pull out a chair and say you are welcome at the table. We are a table of decisions that have gone wrong, leading men into the arms of other women and women into the arms of other men. And to you, we say that mercy runs deep and you are forgiven and you are welcome at the table. We are a table of brilliant minds and a table of simple thoughts. We are a table of those who've had religion used as a weapon against them to keep them in line with guilt and condemnation heaped upon them. But at this table, when everything is quiet, you can hear the whisper of God that says, you belong here. You can hear the whisper of your church that says you have a place at the table. We are a table of orphans and wanderers. We are a table of those who are terminally sick and those who have been made well. At our table are those whose sickness is unseen. It rests in the mind. It anchors in their soul. And to you, there's a place at the table. As your pastor, let me echo the words of Jesus. There's always room for more. Together, we gather at the table. And our stories testify of a grace that we really do not deserve. And collectively, we paint the picture of a love that we cannot earn. Collectively, we tell the story of the prodigals. All of us have wandered, and now we have returned to the table. Let me leave you with this thought. If people are hungry, then let them come and eat. And if they are thirsty, then let them come and drink. It's not my table anyway. It's not my denomination's table or my church's table. It's Christ's table. Christ sends, us, sends out the invitations. And if he has to run through the streets, gathering up the riffraff to fill up his house, then that's exactly what he will do. Who am I to try to block the door? You see, Reveal, we're trying to take the biggest step that we've ever taken as a church. Uh, last week, I had conversations with the owner of the Fresh and Easy. And I felt like I needed to kind of break protocol and get out from the brokers dealing with each other and speak uh, with the owner. And So I called him and I said, let me put all of our cards on the table. 
So we need this space. We want this space, but it's not for the reason that you think. It's not because it is a thriving part of our society. It's not because it is an, an up-and-coming uh, part of our city, but it's because it's in a part of our city that has been largely forgotten and neglected. And it's in a part of our city that we as a church have sown into. And then I laid out for them all that we have done and the countless homes that we've painted and the landscape jobs we've done and the park beautifications and a hundred tons of rock that we purchased and planted and the trees and plants. And we painted the Elmaraz Library and did the landscaping there. And we're in five schools that we do resource rooms. And I just unfolded all of it and said, but if we get into this building and we're not able to be the church that we've always been, then it is a lose for us. And so he said, well, where are you thinking that you need to be at? And I threw out a number. I said, here's where we need to be the first year. And he just went, oh. He said, I, he said that's your all-in number? I said, yeah, for year one, that's our all-in number. He said, I don't know how we can do that. It was a very pleasant conversation. And we left it at that. And the next morning, I got an email saying, I'll agree to your first year terms. And not only that, he agreed to put in $350,000 into the build-up. Which for a small church, we are a huge risk. Churches in general, unless you're CCV, is a huge risk. And so for him to say, I'll put in $350,000 into that build-up, is a huge risk. And what he said is, look, we've come to understand that this place is probably best used for something that's going to better the community. And if we can work this together, then I think we could be very successful. Now, we don't have a deal as of yet. We're probably 90% of the way there. He sent the, the lease over for us to sign, but we have a few other things that we need to talk about. But here's what I need you to know. That if we move into that new space and we have a figurative table that is not open to everyone, we will fail as a church. And the only way that I want us to move in to a new community and into a new church is if all of us who are part of Reveal will have the attitude of saying, there is a place at the table for you. It doesn't matter what you've been through or what life looks like. It doesn't matter your education. It doesn't matter your marital status. There's a place at the table for you. And if as a church we collectively have that attitude and live it, then our best days are ahead of us. But if we go in with a table that's closed off, then let's just shut down and save ourselves the hassle of a move. But I think there's greatness inside of you because the Spirit of God, I think, is going to birth something in us that we are a church that says there's always room for more at the table. I want you to take a moment, if you will, and just reflect on today's message. Maybe you need to wrestle with some of what was said. Maybe, maybe you're closed off to certain people. Maybe there's, there's certain people that you just, the thought of them, you don't want them at the table. And maybe you need to repent. Maybe it's just the Holy Spirit that's going to put someone in your mind's eye that says, this person, you need to invite them to the table. Would you just take a moment, however you do that, would you just allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you about this idea of all of us inviting others to the table. Holy Spirit, come.
Ask God to make you an, inv- an, an inviter and includer. That you would model this idea of always bringing the outside to the inner core. Bringing those on the outside in. Invited in, Lamb of God, we come. We are weak, poor, broken. We come hungry, thirsty, despairing. Invited in, Lamb of God, we come. We say yes to your invitation. We give way to your ushering. Unworthy but welcome. Unclean but beautiful. Outcast but wanted. Scandalized but loved. Invited in, Lamb of God, we come. At your urging, we welcome others. We cry in the streets, come to the banquet. All are welcome. Invited in, Lamb of God, we come. In view of your mercy, we offer each other a love and a community song. Take and eat, take and drink, all belong. Invited in. Lamb of God, we come.